Stand if you would for the reading of the word. I was going to ask you to continue to stand, but let's come back up one more time. And it won't be for long. We're continuing our look this summer at benedictions, doxologies, and prayers. And this one is found embedded right in the middle of the little letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. So hear now the word of the Lord. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The word of the Lord. And you may be seated. It's interesting, normally a benediction comes toward the end of a service or a sermon or even a letter. This one is found right in the middle of this little letter that Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. Now you remember the story. In Acts chapter 16, Paul hears a call. He's staying at Troas. He hears a call in the night, come over into Macedonia and help us. And so Paul goes over into Macedonia, and if you'll remember, he went to the town of Philippi. And there, for all of his preaching and all of his good efforts, he got thrown into jail. He and Silas were beaten and thrown into the Roman prison and sang praises at midnight. And you know the story of the Philippian jail and the Philippian jailer who came forth when the earthquake opened all of their bonds and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Very soon, Paul left Philippi and went straight across the Roman road running east and west to the seacoast town of Thessalonica. And there he, Silas, and Timothy was with him as well at this point, preached the gospel in the Jewish synagogues and began to reach people for the Lord, not only Jews, but also Gentiles. And before long, it was only there a few weeks, there came this riot and this persecution, and they had to get Paul out of there in a hurry, so they sent him out to the sea, and he went down by himself to Athens. And it was at Athens there he preached at Mars Hill, and then he went on further south in Achaia, the southern province, all the way down to Corinth. And it's from Corinth now that he probably writes this correspondence, because Timothy has joined with him, Silas has come, it's a possibility that they have delivered the first letter and maybe brought back some more correspondence. So we have thus first and second Thessalonians. Now one of the interesting things about this letter is it may very well be the oldest correspondence of any of the letters in the New Testament. These letters were written approximately around 49, 50, 51 A.D., about 20 years after the life of Christ and his ascension in 30 A.D. So about 20 years have come and gone, and Paul and other evangelists, the, the original apostles, Peter and others, have taken the gospel to the known world and are preaching the gospel, and people are being saved and converted, and they're building this church and so Paul writes these two letters back to them to encourage them, to comfort them, to strengthen them because they're having some difficulty. One of the things they're having is the persecution continued, even though Paul managed to get away from it because it was so intense upon him, it still come upon them. 
They were still being persecuted. They still had afflictions. They still had difficulties. One of the things that had happened is some false teachers had gotten in there and begun to teach a false doctrine. And the false doctrine was that Christ said he would return. Well, he's already returned and you missed it. And that particular false doctrine is beginning to eat some people and worry them. Not only that, they had loved ones who had died and gone on to, to their graves and had missed the return of Christ. And that theme of the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, is found seven times in these two little letters. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, each chapter, chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, each chapter ends with a verse or a passage that has reference to the second coming of Christ. Now, the return of Christ is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. And Paul even indicates that they were very familiar with the particulars of that doctrine even before he had gotten there to preach the details to them. And he said there were things he didn't need to write to them about because they already knew them. But there were some crucial things he needed to emphasize. In that particular letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul begins to outline and delineate some of the things that have to do with the return of Christ. Now let's back up just a moment and get a perspective on this. Jesus had ascended and he told his people that he would come again and receive them to himself that where he was, they may be also. In fact, even the angels, when Jesus ascended, said, this same Jesus that you see ascending shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. The doctrine of the second coming of Christ is a cardinal truth in the Christian faith. But it's interesting that we now, living here in the New Testament age and living here in the age between the advents of the Lord have a similar problem that the people before Christ came the first time. You think about it. It's the advent. The word means going or coming to or toward. It's the coming toward us of the Lord. The Old Testament saints in the days of Abraham, Moses, and David, and others looked forward to the coming of Christ, and their prophets preached to them about there's coming a day, there will be a day, that day, in that day, the day of the Lord is coming. Amos and Hosea, and especially the exilic prophets at the very end, Zechariah and others, preached strongly that the, the Lord was going to come and there'd be a visitation and he would save Israel and he would save his people and he would redeem and he would restore, he would establish the kingdom, he would make all things new. When he came... He came to Bethlehem as a baby, the Son of God incarnate. And he proceeded in his work, but his work was that of humble sacrifice, of giving of himself for his people, offering himself as a sacrifice and an atonement for their sins. He was crucified, he was buried, he was raised, he ascended. What about the establishment of the kingdom? What about 
all the things that God had promised in the Old Testament. They came to realize, and they came to realize very quickly that the return of Christ would be a second advent. The first advent had been for a purpose. The second advent would take place. And all that the Old Testament prophets had predicted in one lump, in one fell swoop, in multiple prophecies, had to be seen as unfolding and fulfilling in more than one coming. The visitation of the Lord had a first phase, and then he went back to heaven. Assuredly, there would be another phase. There was more to the Lord's work, more that he would do for his people. There were more prophecies to be fulfilled, and the end had not taken place. And so there came a concern about last things. It's what the word eschaton means. It means the last day. That last day, things will happen. Job even spoke of it early. On the last day, the Lord would stand upon the earth. And so we have our study in the New Testament, in the primitive church, of eschatology, that is the study of last things. And in this particular group of epistles, these two little letters that Paul writes, there are seven passages that talk about the second coming of Christ. It's clearly not just a footnote in these letters. It's very important. The words that are used are very important. Five times in First and Second Thessalonians, the word parousia is used, the parousiosis. It is the coming, it is an arrival, it is a, a showing up. It's the word that's used quite often when a ruler or a sovereign or a king or an emperor comes. It's a welcome receiving. It's also just a little fear and trembling, a little trepidation having to do with it too when, when that coming takes place. Another word that's used in this particular passage of scripture is the word epiphany, an epiphany. It means an appearance, a showing. A third word that's used twice is the word apocalypse. It means an unveiling, a disclosure, a revelation. In fact, the book of Revelation, that's the, what it's called. It's the apocalypse. It's the book of the opening of the curtains to let us see what takes place in the last days and the last times. There's another word, prosopon, it means presence. The coming of the Lord is a presence. It's not used in Thessalonians at all. Those are your key ideas, that the Lord's coming is a real coming. And so there's several things we can sort of summarize about the coming of the Lord. Number one, it's future. Yes, it's future to us. The day of the Lord is coming. The great eschatological day of the Lord has been inaugurated at his first advent and is continuing and will be consummated at the last, the second advent, that future coming of the Lord. One of the things we know about it as we look at it carefully is it's literal. Just as sure as Jesus came as a little baby in a manger, he will come as the king of glory in the clouds. It is a real physical coming. It's not just a spiritual coming. It wasn't fulfilled at the day of Pentecost when the third person of the Trinity came 
to do the work of the Son in the Holy Spirit. That was a coming of the Lord. That was not the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And this coming is a real, physical appearance of the Lord. The Bible says, every eye shall see him, and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. It's a literal, bodily, visible presence and coming of Jesus Christ back to see and be with his people. One of the interesting words that's used in this particular uh, passage is found there in um, chapter 2, verse 1 in 2 Thessalonians. Paul says, now concerning the coming, and it's the word parousia, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord has not come. And don't be deceived, Paul says. But the word I want us to notice there is what he calls it. He calls it the coming of the Lord and our being together, gathered together in him. The word here is the word epi-sunagage, synagogue. The synagogue is the gathering together in one place of the whole congregation. And when you put the little prefix epi upon a Greek word, you intensify it, you multiply it, you magnify and emphasize it completely. So an epi-synagogue, think about it, an epi-synagogue is a huge gathering. A huge gathering of people in one place, at one time, with the Lord, our gathering together with Him. And that's exactly what Jesus had promised. He had promised that He had gone to prepare a place for them and that He would return and receive them unto Himself, that where He was there, they will be also. That's the fulfillment of that. Jesus calls it in His teaching a harvest, a gathering a gathering from all across the centuries and all across the nations, the peoples that have come to know the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ. They have come and they are His. They are His synagogue. They are His people. They're His flock, His gathering, His church, His bride. And He's bringing them all together at His return. That's what the important thing needs to be nailed down is this is our gathering together with the Lord. It won't be just each one of us having a private epiphany, but it will be a grand and glorious meeting. All the saints of the ages and all the saints of today will meet him and be with him forever. There are several passages in this particular set of letters that we probably need to look at, but let's just look at one as I conclude. It's a familiar one. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Remember, one of the concerns was that the people, some have died already, and did they miss the coming of the Lord? Is it too late for them? And so he answers that particular issue, beginning in verse 13, chapter 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, that is the gospel, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Don't worry about your family members, your loved ones who have died in the Lord. Don't worry about the saints of all the ages that preceded Christ dying in faith in belief and hope of the coming Messiah. Don't worry about these because he describes what will happen. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Paul claims that this teaching he's about to give originated with Christ. Paul didn't make it up. Peter didn't make it up. It wasn't just part of the folklore of the primitive church. It is the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. And then Paul spells it out. That we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. That doesn't sound like a secret rapture of the church to me. It's hard to keep a trumpet blast secret. It's hard not to hear an angel shout. It's difficult to avoid the cry of the messenger of the coming of the Lord. It's hard to avoid the trumpet blast. This is when God comes again. This language is language out of the Old Testament. It's the language of the convocation of ancient Israel when they gathered together, every man, every woman, every child from every tribe gathered together. This is the gathering of the Lord, his people together. And so you see, those that are alive and remain will not be ahead of those that sleep. All those that sleep come forth from the graves, raised from the dead. Souls reunited with bodies, bodies reconstructed by the miracle working power of God to bring all things to life. The very giver of life himself restores it to them and they burst out of the graves. When the Lord comes, there'll be graves opened in Dallas. There'll be graves opened in Hong Kong and all around the world. Of all the saints of all the ages will come forth. And then we, and to continue on, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. 
Here's the comfort for those of us who are alive at the coming of the Lord. It may be our generation. It may not be. Maybe a generation down the road a ways. One thing about the coming of the Lord you need to remember is we don't know when. The angels in heaven don't know when. Even the Lord in his earthly ministry didn't know when, the times and the seasons and all the rest. But we know the certainty of it. And you think about it a minute. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ. How long did Abraham have to wait for the promise to be fulfilled of the seed that is Christ? 2,000 years. How long has it been since Christ ascended? back to heaven about 2,000 years. So it's not an unreasonable length of time. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but his long suffering to us. He's waiting for us to come to repentance. He's waiting for us to get ready for that day, that day of reckoning, that day of meeting. We won't look at it this morning, but there's another passage just a couple of pages over that talks about the coming of the Lord. And it's kind of a scary passage. It says in there that the Lord will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God and obey not the gospel. The coming of Christ is a wonderful hope to the believer, but if it's taken seriously, it should be a terror to the unbeliever. You should know, friend, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not ready for that day. You better pray it doesn't happen anytime soon. The Lord is waiting upon you to come to Him, to confess your sins, to repent of your sins, to embrace Christ, to follow him, to obey him, to love him, to come, to be his, so that when he comes to receive his own, you're in that number. And it's a number, by the way, that nobody can count. That was the promise God made to Abraham. I'm going to give you a people that are just like the number of the stars in the heavens and the grains of sand on the seashore. That's the company of the believers that will meet Christ at his return. And the scriptures say those of us that are alive and remain after there's been the great resurrection of the dead will be caught up. He says in another place in 1 Corinthians, a little bit more about that, he talks about the change that will take place. The mortal will put on immortality, the corrupt will put on incorruption. But there'll be a change to take place. It won't take long. It'll take a twinkling of an eye. Not the blink of an eye. That's entirely too slow. The twinkling of an eye will be changed. And the Bible says we'll be caught up. The Latin word is rapio, which we get our word rapture. And that's what the rapture of the church really is. It's that being caught up to meet the Lord in the air and so Shall we ever be with the Lord? As I conclude, I want to try to correct the bulletin, if I may. I never get to send in my title. I preach every Sunday morning here at 11 o'clock on the same passage, the same text that you see 
when you're here at your 930 service. But I don't pick the passage. I don't pick the title. The only thing I can choose is how long I preach. I can preach by as long as I want to. And this time they asked me for the title, and I was so excited to do that that I gave them the wrong title. The scripture speaks of eternal comfort and good hope. And so when I scribbled it down to give it to them and email it off in two or three different confusing ways, it ended up eternal hope. And I didn't catch that. And I'm here to tell you, beloved, there ain't no such thing as eternal hope. And I'll tell you why. Once hope has been fulfilled in the reality, there's no more need for hope. There's eternal comfort, but there's not eternal hope. The blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is that return. And when He has returned, and when we are with Him for all eternity, forever, in the new heavens and the new earth, and all that entails, and we don't know, it's just sketchy, but it's good. There won't be any need to be expectantly hoping for it anymore. It will be here. It will be a reality. It will be completely over. Let me ask you as we conclude. Are you ready for that day? There's coming a day. We don't know when. But Christ will split the eastern sky. And the manifestation all throughout the Bible is that our God is a consuming fire. You saw it at, the, at, at every juncture in the revelation. God's mighty, brilliant presence will usher in in the glory cloud the cloud of the spirit his son to rule and to reign over all the earth to bring alive all the saints of the ages to join us with them are you ready for that day have you even thought about it very much do you think it's just fantasy god's people have always lived in hope God's people have always expected. God's people have looked forward. God's people live by faith and not by sight. God's people long and anticipate and, and, and search the scriptures to find glimmers and glimpses of God's precious promises. And we live on that. And that's faith. That's what God calls for us to have, is to believe him that he will bring it to pass. And with respect to the second coming of Christ that Paul speaks about in this passage, it is a good hope, a blessed hope, a valid hope. God will bring it to pass. Christ will return. He'll come again. He will appear. He will be unveiled in all of his glory, he comes to be enjoyed, relished by his saints. If you're not ready, the scriptures give us a pretty simple thing. You know how Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved? Peter said on, on the occasion he was preaching, he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're a sinner today, and I believe most of you probably are, some of you may be a little worse than others, but if you're a sinner today, you're a candidate for salvation. 
Come to Christ. I love the way the psalmist says it. Kiss the son. Embrace the son. Lest he be angry with you. And smite you from the earth. There's a comfort in the invitation to come to Christ. But there's also a discomfort. The invitation to come to Christ is more than an invitation. It's a summons. It's a come or else. It's a come or you won't be part of that number. It's a coming to me or you will be cast out. Anyone that comes will not be cast out. Make this your morning. Make this your day. That you heed the still small voice of the Spirit speaking to your conscience. And that you've heard this little piece of the gospel message that talks about the return of Christ. And it has cemented your soul to your Savior.